0: Good morning. Genesis chapter 20 is where we find ourselves this morning. So turn there in your Bible and we heard about the Hughes family this morning who is serving in Sapporo, Japan. Earlier this week, I was thinking about recently departed missionaries, Tori and Matt Jansen and I I thought about their contributions up here on the platform and I thought, wouldn't it be great if they could read the scripture for us this morning. So uh, Being 21st century people, all I had to do was send a couple of Facebook messages, and they sent back a YouTube video. So with Tori on the camera, and Matthew with the word before him from Tokyo, uh, Matthew's going to read the scripture for us. Ian? Good morning from Tokyo, Grace family. Let's
1: go to God's word together. Good morning from Tokyo, Grace family. Let's go to God's word together. Genesis 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev, and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold! You are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, She is my sister? For she herself said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands I have done this. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did these things? Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold.
0: Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word this morning, I pray that your spirit would superintend over our time, over our hearts, and make us more the men and women, the boys and girls that you want us to be in this world. I pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, 100 years ago, the Chicago White Sox were one of the most powerful teams in Major League Baseball. Their lineup boasted uh, some of the brightest stars, probably the brightest for the Sox at least, was Joe Jackson. Uh, Jackson, also known as Shoeless Joe, for playing a minor league game back in the summer of 1908 without his shoes to save his blistered feet, was uh, the one who led the White Sox in 1917 over John McGraw's New York Giants, a mighty National League team overtaken by the White Sox. Well, the next year, uh, Jackson is doing military service in World War I. The Sox plummet into what was then known as the second division, and they ended the year under 500. But in 1919, uh, Joe Jackson is back in strength and with him the Sox. And come autumn, they're in the World Series facing the upstart Cincinnati Reds, and they are picked to win. But they lose. In fact, they lost because eight members of the team intentionally chose to do so. The people of Chicago thought that these men, including Shoeless Joe, were playing to win. We're playing for them, but the Sox, to spite their tight-fisted owner, Charles Comiskey, and make a few extra thousand dollars a piece, were playing for themselves, as well as a gambling syndicate run by a man named Arnold Rothstein. Well, as you can imagine, the city was crestfallen. I mean, just think, if we were now hearing that the Dodgers had thrown game seven of the World Series. We'd we'd be incredulous. Well, the people's sense of disbelief and disappointment in the Sox was summed up by a a wistful tribute to Jackson written by a fellow named Charlie Owens that appeared in the old uh, Chicago Daily News. Uh, The Daily News was the afternoon paper, the Trib was the morning paper back in those days under the epic headline that some of you can probably intone with me, say it ain't so, Joe, say it ain't so. And since then, that questioning plea, that line, that phrase has become the most popular expression in America of disbelief and disappointment by those who assume the very best about a person or persons only to later discover the worst. Say it ain't so, Joe. Say it ain't so. And that is exactly what we want to say to Abraham as we get here into Genesis chapter 20. Say it ain't so, Abe. Say it ain't so. Because of his actions in this chapter, we are arrested with disbelief. And disappointment for two reasons. Disbelief. Because this is the second time on record that Abraham is guilty of passing off Sarah as his sister. That's noteworthy. That is noteworthy because in this book of firsts, which is what Genesis is. uh, The name means beginnings or firsts. In this book of firsts, this is the first second. Second time around, we saw it the first time back in Genesis chapter 12, and we're seeing it again here in Genesis chapter 20. And we find repeating something of this magnitude hard to believe. In fact, liberal scholars find it so hard to believe that they think Genesis 12 is actually repeated here in Genesis 20. It's just that these names have been replaced with these names. How could anyone be so stupid as to do this twice, especially in light of the heartache that it brought to Abraham and his family, most notably through Hagar, the Egyptian servant of Sarah and the mother of Abraham's son, Ishmael? Say it ain't so, Abe. Say it ain't so. But second, we're also seized with disappointment because if you can't trust Abraham, who can you trust? He is the one through whom God expressly promised to bless the world. Back in chapter 12, verse 3. He's the one through whom others were obviously blessed. We saw this in the last chapter at which we looked, chapter 19, where we read God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow that is in Sodom and Gomorrah when he overthrew the city in which Lot lived so God didn't save Lot for Lot's sake he saved Lot because of the prayers of Abraham and we're going to see this again in the next chapter to which we come chapter 21 where God says and I will make a great nation of the son of the slave woman because he is Abraham's offspring chapter 21 verse 13 so Abraham is clearly the means of God's gracious and undeserved blessing to others. But not only that, he's a great man of faith. In fact, faith that was counted to him as righteousness in chapter 15, verse 6. Faith that was proven in battle, chapter 14, verse 16. Faith that was proven in prayer, chapter 19, verse 26. Faith that was commended to you and to me as exemplary in Hebrews chapter 11. But here in chapter 20, two chapters after being assured of the miraculous birth of his forthcoming son through the heretofore infertile Sarah, Abraham is faithless, absolutely faithless, succumbing to his pet sin that impugns his integrity, compromises his wife, and compounds a sin that would follow even his own son. And we'll see that later in Genesis 26. And if that isn't enough, at the end of it all, he throws God under the bus, blaming him for all of these problems. Say it ain't so, Abe. Say it ain't so. But the disbelief and the disappointment that we feel concerning Abraham's besetting sin, we most acutely feel when we look in the mirror and are confronted with our own because we all have a besetting sin. Like Abraham, you have a sin to which you return again and again and again for protection, for comfort, for relief, for avoidance, for justification. A sin with which you have a long history to which you may feel inextricably linked. A sin from which you would give almost anything to be free, to be liberated. A sin that you combat to the best of your ability with parental advice and uh, common sense and uh, life experience and pulpit wisdom. And yet a 17th century poet, George Herbert, observed All these fences and their whole array, one cunning bosom sin blows quite away. Say it ain't so. Say it ain't so, Randy. Say it ain't so. So, how does God work out his entirely perfect plan if he is is dealing with entirely imperfect people? Like Abraham, like you like me well Genesis 20 helps us to understand the answer to that question by doing a couple of things first by exposing Abraham's sin and then revealing God's sovereignty and as it relates to God's sovereignty he shows us three different aspects of it first he shows us his sovereign omniscience and then his sovereign mercy and then finally, his sovereign grace. In fact, these are the ways that uh, we'll cut our way forward through the passage this morning. So follow along and uh, you'll stay right up to speed. Well, let's begin by considering Abraham's sin, his besetting sin, his dogging sin. The first thing about this sin is is the setting in which it occurs. Uh, We notice here that Abraham and Sarah have moved. They've called Paul Gussif, and he has attended to their needs. Uh, Back in chapter 12, he put them down in Egypt. It didn't work so well, now they are in Gerar. And in both places, Abraham was afraid that the king would take Sarah to be his wife and kill him being Sarah's husband. And, and so to save his neck, he espouses this half-truth, telling foreign leaders that Sarah was his sister. That's what he told to Pharaoh in chapter 12. This is what he's saying to Abimelech in Gerar here in chapter 20. In fact, it was Abraham's intention to tell that half-truth everywhere they went. Because as we see there in verse 13, take a look at verse 13. From the very beginning of their travels, Abraham told Sarah, this is the kindness that you must do for me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Now, the reason that this is a half-truth is because Abraham was in fact Sarah's brother. Brother. But more than that, Abraham is Sarah's husband. A relationship of much deeper meaning and much greater import. As one scholar observed, if Abraham had fully realized God's power, he would have preserved his integrity without fear because no mere human potentate can thwart God's plan. And we see that explicitly detailed in Psalm 2. But Abraham had not fully realized that. So when Abimelech inquired about Sarah and was told by Abraham that she is my sister, ergo eligible to marry, well, the king innocently took her into his household. Abraham's half-truth reminds me of a couple that Nancy and I know, not here in California, but elsewhere. Uh, The husband is a U.S. citizen uh, and a Swiss citizen. The wife is a U.S. citizen and a Canadian citizen. And I remember the two of them telling me about an international vacation that they took one summer during which they decided to enter countries uh, with the passport that they thought would be most welcome at the border they pretty shrewd. So if the US one seemed to be uh, the passport that would work best, they would use that. And if they were entering a country that might not be friendly to the US, they would use the other passport. But on a certain day, as they were leaving a particular country, uh, there at the border, the guard asked, how did you get in here? And they replied, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, how, how did you get into the country? they replied well why do you ask and he said because I see no entry stamps in either of these passports well the couple looked at each other and they immediately realized what they had done they had entered the country on their other passports so they looked at each other gulped reached into their bags pulled out their passports and said oh we entered the country on these passports. At which point, as you can guess, the guard said something like, leave your bags right here, I'll meet you over in that office. Well, their veiled half-truth upon entering the country turned out to be a total mess as it was exposed on their way out. And the story before us here has barely begun, and like my friends, Abraham's veiled truth Told upon entering Gerar, it's starting to unravel and is soon going to hit the light of day. Not because of a lapse in Abraham's conduct, uh, nor a lapse in his speech. This was all well rehearsed. This, this was uh, iron tight. Rather, it, it, it will be revealed because of God's sovereignty, his sovereign Intervention which gives us the first glimpse of how God works out his perfect plan through imperfect people here in Genesis 20. Notice that God's sovereign omniscience, that is his ability to know and to see everything reveals Abraham's sin. Again, Abraham thinks that this routine ruse is totally on the DL, But in verse 3, God reveals it to Abimelech by way of a dream, in which the Lord says to the king, first, you are a dead man. And the reason you're a dead man is, second, because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But not just any man's wife, she is Abraham's wife. So I I think it, it is good for us to stop here and simply notice this fact. God is serious. He is dead serious when it comes to his word. He's serious. In this case, his word regarding the sanctity of marriage established back in Genesis chapter 2. And serious about his covenant with Abraham, which was established in Genesis 2 chapter 12, both of which were essential to producing and identifying and elev- elevating the coming Messiah. God intends for neither a sin of omission on the part of Abimelech or a sin of commission on the part of Abraham to compromise the integrity of that plan. So friends, I, I think it, it must be said at this point, the scripture is clear. The Lord sees Everything and everyone. And everything and everyone that he sees, he remembers. Nothing escapes him. The Lord sees everyone. Hebrews 4.13. He sees everything. Psalm 11.4, Proverbs 5.21. And what he sees, he remembers Hosea 7, verse 2. So, victims of sin take heart because God sees you and he knows your pain. And perpetrators of sin, sins against others, sins against yourself, take note, be warned because God sees and knows your plan. Everything is under the sight of God do not be deceived God is not mocked for whatever one sows that will he also reap Galatians 6 7 be sure your sin will find you out numbers 32 23 well how does God work out his entirely perfect plan if he's dealing with entirely imperfect people well to begin by not letting them get away with their imperfections which elicits a compelling plea of innocence from Abimelech. Uh, There are three parts to it. It's found in verse 4. I'd like to begin at the end of the verse and work our way up through these three things. First, Abimelech says, my heart and my hands are innocent in this matter. Second, he says, I mean, Sarah said, he's my brother. And Abraham said, she's my sister. So this isn't just Abraham's roots. They're both in on this thing together. And then third, Abimelech appeals. So Lord, will you kill an innocent people? It's a very interesting line. In fact, it's a line that we've all heard before from this book. In chapter 18, it was prayed by Abraham, wasn't it? on behalf of the innocent in Sodom and Gomorrah. But now here in chapter 20, it is prayed by Abimelech for protection from Abraham, whose deception had gone from being private and safe, which is always how sin starts, to being public and dangerous, disrespecting Abimelech's hospitality, casting reproach upon God's program in the eyes of of his host and then endangering other persons including the king and his wife this whole thing reminds me of the little analogy of sin that goes like this it starts as a kitten that you can hold and pet in your lap and then it grows into a lion by which you are devoured how Times have changed. And that brings us to the second glimpse of how God works out his perfect plan through imperfect persons. Notice that God's sovereign mercy. His mercy protects Abimelech from Abraham's besetting sin. So take a look at verse six where God says, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. And therefore, I did not let you touch her. I, I, I. To be sure, God's sovereign mercy is going to protect, is protecting Sarah's purity. It's going to save Abraham's life. But these are secondary to the overriding attention it gives to God's magnificent glory. We sang about it earlier the one who deserves the greater glory. You see, God doesn't have mercy on children to save a family. He doesn't have mercy on a couple to save a marriage. He doesn't have mercy on an addict to save a life. Rather, he has mercy on on families and marriages and addicts to his glory, to his glory to draw attention to him. Anything else, while surely welcome, is secondary. That's why God says to Abimelech in verse 6, It was I who kept you from sinning, not against Sarah, but against me. So in light of God's glorious mercy, it is no wonder that Abimelech is quick to follow his instructions there in verse number 7 which is simply this, return Sarah to Abraham. If you do, Abraham, who is a prophet, it's the first time that word is used in the Bible, Abraham, who is a prophet, will pray for you, and you'll live. But if you don't, you're going to die. And not only will you die, but your family will die with you. So, Abimelech obeys God's word. I mean, he's up and at it the next morning. He calls together his household there in verse 8. He briefs them on what's going on. They are obviously frightened. And then he interrogates, uh, presumably, a flat footed and wide eyed Abraham in verses 9 through 10. And he does it with earnestness. Have I sinned against you? With integrity. You have done things that ought not to have been done. And with the mercy that God himself had shown Abimelech, letting Abraham explain himself uh, why this had all happened by answering this question, what did you see that you did this thing? Well, the lights are on, and Abraham's at center stage. This is his moment. And he flops. I mean, his excuses are so lame. Take a look at verse 11. He tells the king, Well, I thought... You don't want to begin with those words. No, no, no. Say say it ain't so, buddy. No. Well, I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place. They're going to kill me because of my wife. Wrong. In fact, Abraham, perilously wrong. For the people of Gerar, for the royal family. For you and your wife. And in verse 12, he confesses, this is a good thing, he confesses uh, to lying about his relationship with Sarah, which is certainly a step in the right direction. But there was one problem. He kept on moving his lips. So you get into verse 13, and he throws God under the bus by shifting the blame for his lie from himself to the Lord by linking it with the divine call to leave his native earth. In fact, it's worse than that. Abraham said to Abimelech, not what you see there in verse 13, when God caused me to wonder. Uh, literally, he said, when the gods, plural, caused me to wander, Like one pagan speaking, another and you gotta wonder what Abimelech's thinking as he listens to Abraham try to spin one slick lie to cover another especially when he himself had been addressed by the one the true and the living God concerning Abraham's deception say it ain't so Abe say it ain't so But this brings us to the third glimpse of how God works out his perfect plan through imperfect people here in Genesis 20. Bimelech's thoughtful obedience to God's word and Abraham's entirely imperfect contrition were followed by liberal serving of God's sovereign grace. In fact, it's grace upon grace upon grace. First, in verses 14 through 16, grace for Abraham, to whom Abimelech gave livestock and servants and land, and his wife, whose innocence is confirmed with a thousand pieces of silver. Grace in verse 17 for Abimelech, on whose behalf Abraham prayed and God healed, as well as his wife and his female slaves. And then third, grace for Sarah, also in verse 17, though implicitly stated. Sarah, on whose account the women of Abimelech's household had become infertile, but now were not. Allowing Sarah to witness in spades that which, up to this point, she thought was laughable, even impossible for her own barren life, and yet would soon be realized in a year and so they continued to to dwell in this land and so she witnessed again and again and again the truth of God's word that would soon be realized for her clearly a blessing to her and her family and a blessing even for us who live today so how does God work out his entirely perfect plan through imperfect people well by remaining true to his word by holding accountable those who depart from it and by preserving the ones on whom he liberally pours out his undeserved mercy and grace. One scholar writes, it's so common to think that God will love us more if we perform some great work, some external achievement, but the Bible in general, and here in particular, In this story, focuses, he writes, on making a great heart. Here God was working in Abraham to create an unusual dependence on him. To which I'll add, even in his weakness, even in his besetting sin. It meant it was painful, and it was ugly, but it was effective. So again, um, as Jesse had us remember, and as we've already stated uh, here from the pulpit, uh, we all have besetting sins. What was that sin that you brought to mind? That um, uh, depravity that dogs you, that disappoints you, that depresses you. A lot of what we've heard this morning, and and what we'll hear later in this book, I'd like you to remember just three things. Number one, when you go down, get back up. When you go down, like Abraham, get back up. Gerald uh, said that Lord's Supper service for tonight was... uh, Canceled so you can spend time with friends and family. I think I would like to also add football. Because it is Super Bowl 52. And what you'll see on the very first play, play—yay! even the kickoff, the ball is going to fly through the air, a fellow's going to catch it, he's going to start down the field, and he's going to fall down. And then what's he going to do? Get back up. Because if a football game ended when the first guy hit the turf, it wouldn't be much of a game, would it? No, that's part of football. Fall down, get up. Fall down, get up. Move your way down the field. And that's just like life. When you fall down, get up. And as you stand, like Abimelech, like Abraham, confess your sin. <laughs> Going back to the football illustration. Boy, I can remember falling down in football and then hearing about it on Monday. The films. Back and forth and back and forth and falling down. Oh Grundike, why did you why did you step there? You should have stepped there. Alright, coach, I confess I blew it. But it didn't mean that he took me out. He just kept So you've got to confess your sin to God, who is faithful and just to forgive your sins, 1 John 1, 9, and to one another that you might be healed, James 5, 6, 16. And then once you've made your confession, rest in the Lord. Rest in the Lord. Understand this, brothers and sisters, we will never be sinless, but we can sin less and less as we rest in God's boundless mercy and grace fully realized by Jesus Christ at Calvary all to his glory and as we do these things there will be fewer and fewer occasions on which I have to say to myself say it ain't so Randy say it ain't so That Mike will have to say, Say it ain't so, Mike. Say it ain't so. That Laura will have to say, Say it ain't so, Laura. Say it ain't so. Because be growing in the grace and the mercy of God's unending love. So may it be. Let's pray. So, Heavenly Father, we give ourselves to you again. Uh, we are naked before you. You see everything. You know everything. You forget nothing. We need your help. We've asked for it a million times before and we'll ask a million times again. And we're grateful that the answer is always the same. That Jesus died to make us whole. And in him, now and forever, we find our wholeness. May we rest in that sacrifice and him, And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.